hi, welcome to More to Come, PW Comics World's weekly podcast of comics and graphic novel news. I'm Heidi McDonald. I'm the comics reviews editor for Publishers Weekly, as well as the uh, co-editor of PW Comics World and the editor-in-chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com. Uh, you can check us out on social media at PW Comics World on Twitter, on Tumblr, and on Facebook. And today, I am in Toronto for the Librarian and Educator Day uh, at the Toronto Comic Arts Festival. And I'm very happy to be sitting here with a comics educator, I think, but uh, he'll tell you all about, uh, we're going to learn a lot from this man, uh, Dr. Bart Beatty. Bart Beatty. All right. I wanted to, Dr. Bart Beatty. Kate, cut that out. I know she won't, but anyway, because uh, we're on the fly today. Anyway, Bart, uh, boy, you are Mr. Everything. Now, you just have a book coming out, 12 Cent, Ar- 12 Cent Archie. That's right. just came out in February. Right. Okay. Which is all about Archie. Where you read every Archie comic? What? I read them all from the 12 Cent period, which for Archie comics uh, begins in early 1961 and then ends in uh, mid-1969 when they raised the price up to 15 cents. Um, I originally thought... Uh, well, I was asked to do uh, a book in the series for Rutgers University Press uh, where they're looking at great comics. So there's a book uh, by Andrew Hobrick on Watchmen and one by Noah Berlatsky on Wonder Woman. Um, and I said, well, I want to do a kind of not-so-great comic or a comic that traditionally hasn't been thought of as great. And so I chose the kind of more typical Archie. Um, and I thought, well, okay, I've got, I can't do it all. I mean, it's yeah. 75 years. Nobody could read 75 years of worth of Archie comics, and uh, I'd still be reading them. Uh, and not writing about them. And so I narrowed it down, thinking I wanted to write mostly on the 60s, which to me was the best period um, of that title. And I realized kind of early on that, that coincided more or less with the period where it cost 12 cents. And I thought, well, that's a good title, 12 cents Archie. I'll just go with that. Was this the Dan DiCarlo era? Or it the... is, yeah. DiCarlo starts just before 1961. He comes in in 1959, 60. So it's Harry Lucy as the main mm-hmm. artist sure. on, on the Archie title, Dan DiCarlo as the main artist on Betty and Veronica, Sam Schwartz. For most of that run on Jughead, he leaves in 1966, which is, um, you've never seen a comic go from great to lousy uh, so quickly as when Sam Schwartz leaves for Tower Comics, and the next month it's just like, oh, this is terrible, maybe it will get better, but it never really did until he came back. But those were the three, you know, to my mind, those were the big three artists. Now, uh, Harry Lucy uh, is actually probably, I guess he's kind of the cult comics, uh, the cult artist of that period, because a lot of people know Dan DiCarlo, obviously. Right. But uh, Lucy's a huge influence on the Hernandez brothers, yeah. and when you see his art, you're like, <gasps> because uh, Jaime in particular actually has picked up a lot of his mannerisms. Yeah, and Jaime actually uh, wrote the introduction for well, one of the IDW Best of Harry Lucy mm-hmm. volumes, so they did two of those volumes, and, and I can't recommend those volumes mm-hmm. highly enough. I just think... It's one of those things where when I was reading more than 900 Archie comics from the 1960s to write this book, um, all of the stories that I remembered reading as a kid uh, that really stuck out turned out to be Harry Lucy's stories. The, those were the ones that I could tell I read over and over and over obsessively. Of course, not knowing who he was um, at the time. He's an amazing amazing talent when you uh, start to look at the way he deploys body language, yeah, for example. Yeah. Um, just an unbelievable, unbelievable uh, talent, and really, you know, some of those Archie comics are, are genuinely really, really funny. Now, you know, I think when I hear that you read uh, 900 comics, 900 yeah, just comics, over 900. 900 comics, and, you know, the first idea that pops into my mind is, uh, could they make, perhaps, a supersize me type documentary about this? Like, a before and after of, uh, you know, how you were feeling, looking... 
uh, existing in life. I mean, how did how did you get through this? It's um, <laughs> it, it was interesting because when I said I'm going to write a book about Archie, I hadn't read an Archie comic in 35 years. I mean, you know, I gave up Archie comics when I was 12. I moved over to X Men and Fantastic Four and uh, all those other things, and you just kind of put them away. And I just thought, well, there must be something to say. There must be something that I can fill a book with. But it was a sense of dread, like, what if I've signed up to write a book, and in fact there's nothing to say here? Um, and what I learned is, in some ways, there's not. I mean, there's a reason literature profs, I, mean, I teach in an English department at the University of Calgary, and all my colleagues write on Chaucer and Milton and Shakespeare, and there's a reason you write on Hamlet. There's a lot to say about Hamlet. Mm -hmm. It's really good. It has a lot of resonant themes still for today. There's a reason we don't write on three-panel gag strips from the 1960s, because they're generally pretty self-evident. Mm -hmm. uh, so I thought, how am I going to write this book? You know, Do I have to write a 25-page essay on, you know, Archie, Betty, Veronica, love triangle and its eternal themes, it's like, man, that's going to not hold up. So what I ended up doing is trying to model the book on Archie comics themselves. I thought, the, be the reason Archie comics are interesting to me is that they're short. They go from a single panel gag uh, strip to a long Archie story, it's about six pages. So I wrote my book the same way. I have a hundred chapters. Uh, the shortest chapter is two sentences it's about Veronica's mother, who <laughs> essentially doesn't exist. Um, and the longest is about six uh, six pages. The other thing that's about interesting about Archie is there's no continuity at all, like mm -hmm. at all, at all. Right. So they can have anything happen, and it can be contradicted by a hundred other stories. So Betty is either a good bowler or a bad bowler, depending on the needs <laughs> of the story. Doesn't really matter. Um, and so I wrote the book so that you didn't have to read the chapters in any order. You could just kind of jump around in it, and it should make um, sense to you. Uh, so I really I wrote it out of order. I just sort of wrote it on you know today I'm going to write a chapter on Dylan Doily, um, and I would just write a couple of pages on Dylan and then a couple of pages on Moose, and then just sort of you know tried to figure out a structure that they might uh, work like a collection of poems. That uh, if you read them in order, I think you get one experience. If you read them out of order, that would be fine too. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, was there anything um, you know? Besides, the interesting thing about the memory that you just had, you know, like how I remember these stories that that lasted with you. That that's uh, it is kind of funny how, especially with comics, because I find they are like because even we were just in a talk with Scott McCloud. We were talking about the the visual imagery, right. but I mean, it's amazing how powerful those images are that they come through time and. Um, yeah, I think that. one of the, the fascinating things about Archie comics seems to be um, the, people remember reading Archie comics, but they often don't remember specific Archie stories. Right. It's, like, it's more you, of an experience. Exactly. If you think back to television shows that you might have watched, like over and over, I watched Gilligan's Island, it was on after school, and the Brady Bunch and things like that. I can recall individual episodes of the Brady sure. Bunch. Uh, but I was just like, yeah, I, I have a sense of reading Archie, but I don't remember Archie. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I would open this comic and uh, I would be like, I remember this. At the cottage that my parents had, there was a box of Archie comics to the neighbors, and they had this comic. And as soon as I saw the first panel, I was like, oh, I know where the story goes. I remember this. And that deja vu, that sense of the flooding back of being eight years old on a rainy day, living up on a lake um, in oh, yeah. northern Ontario, was just... Oh, uh, you know, incredibly overwhelming, and I was like, I and loved this story. I remember this story because I read it a hundred times. We had no television; we didn't even really have radio up uh, where I lived, and so that's what you did if it was poor weather. You played cards and you read old Archie comics. Do you think there's been a lot of? Um, I mean, I think kind of contemporaneously. Like I started reading 
comics during this period you're talking about. Uh, and I did not read Archie's. I rejected them very quickly. They right. did not, uh, for whatever reason. Uh, I was more into Carl Barks and John Stanley comics. Those are the ones that I absolutely loved. And obviously there's been a lot of scholarship written about those right. two creators. Uh, Stanley did uh, Lulu with Irving Tripp. Carl Barks did the, the um, Duck, the Disney Ducks. And, I mean, there's been, like, like you are saying, you know, how you could write a lot about, I mean, you know, Barks has been examined in terms of, you know, his escalation stories and, um, you know, Stanley's been examined and everything. I mean, what do you think, I, I mean, do, do you think that Archie does stand up to that kind of level, do you think, in storytelling? Or think, do you think it, it's... I think the best ones do. It's funny, I, when I wrote this book, I thought, I want to resist that. I want to get away from this kind of great man idea and just talk about the average, the typical, the run-of-the-mill, and, you know, what, you know, what might we learn by looking at comics that aren't great mm -hmm. comics. And then I found that some of the stories were really great. <laughs> and it, it's, it's funny. You can say intellectually, I'm going to resist this. I'm not going to do this. But when you're looking at some of the Harry Lucy stuff, the better Harry Lucy stuff or the better Sam Schwartz stuff, you're going, you know what? This is good. This is every bit mm -hmm. as good as, as John Stanley and Karl Barks. I, I absolutely think that the best Harry Lucy stories uh, with Frank Doyle writing uh, were every bit as good mm -hmm. as uh, even the best Barks and, and Stanley stories. And I think they've kind of been unjustly overlooked. I think one of the reasons is that, um, you know, they stopped, well, they didn't stop making Ducks uh, comics because they're still making them, uh, but, you know, for the most part, they died down, whereas right, Archie's right. kept going. Yeah. And so Archie's kind of being overwhelmed, you know, those artists have been lost in the continuing 50 more years of uh, work that's being done, some good, some bad, uh, by Archie Comics. And so they kind of get lost in the shuffle, and they haven't been as, fans haven't been as interested in curating the best Archie material, and Archie Comics themselves, as a publisher, haven't been that interested, and IDW is now kind of doing it for them, and Dark Horse is doing it uh, yeah. for them. But, so we may see a bit of a revival um, of, those, uh, of those artists um, mm -hmm. in that way, and I think, you know, uh, particularly Schwartz and, and uh, Lucy, and to a lesser extent, DiCarlo are really, um, really deserving of that right. kind of appreciation. Right. Um, do you, I mean, here's the dumb question that everybody's going to ask you, but why do you think Archie has lasted so long? Why is this comic thousands and thousands and thousands of pages in? Yeah, I, I think it, they're one of the only publishers for a long time who catered to that particular demographic, which is kids that are about 8 to 12 years old. Um, everybody else slowly got out of, you know, Dell went bankrupt and uh, Gold Key goes away and everybody kind of, you know, DC and Marvel really never had a sustained effort to push at that particular demographic and so they've been left alone in a lot of ways to uh, to pursue that. Um, you know, they make some interesting choices now with Afterlife with Archie and so on. They're clearly going after a more mature And, and they are audience. rebooting actually in a couple months. Exactly. Actually, with, what we're talking about is actually going to end. Yeah, with Mark Wade and Fiona Staples and so mm -hmm. um, you know, and I know that they want to go to a more serialized uh, route, and I, I look and I think, you know, you have this one area to yourself, which is the short humor comic for preteen kids, and it's made you a lot of money over 75 years, I, I don't know why you necessarily <laughs> move away from it, I'm not a comics publisher, so right. maybe, maybe they know more about their audience than I right, do, but... Right. Uh, yeah, you know, it has survived an unbelievable, uh, you know, social words. And, I mean, it's very, I mean, it is, you know, based on, I always, I, I guess I thought a little bit as I read the, that they were kind of like the little Lulu gang, maybe grown up a little bit. Right. But then they became, I don't know, they became less interesting to me because they were into this dating and, I don't know, they became less, I think, <laughs> Arch, Riverdale's less imaginative 
in a way. Is, they yeah. have less fantasy life, I think, maybe. I think it's, it's funny, because if you talk to, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but if you talk to Jaime and Gilbert Hernandez about it, they really liked Bob Bowling, Little Archie uh, stories, which they, right, they which argue are have. much more imaginative. And it's funny, when I was talking to them about it, uh, I was saying, you know, those stories always creeped me out. Like, that to me, that was the kind of scary version of, of Riverdale. And that's what they really liked about it. Um, and even when I went back as an adult and said, okay, now I'm going to read Bob Bowling, so I was like, wow, this is dark and creepy and kind of uh, whereas Riverdale for the teens is, yeah, it's very bright, very pastel color. Um, it's a really, it's an image of high school for kids who aren't in high school yet and who right. might be anxious right. about going to high school. Um, but it's a nice vision of, of the world where you're just this hapless doofus named Archie and two girl, beautiful girls are fighting over you. Um, and where, you, you know, your worst enemy, Reggie, might also be your best friend in other <laughs> stories. I mean, he's a kind of classic frenemy character. Right, right. Where it's like nothing really bad ever happens and the teachers aren't really out to get you. And deep down, they really do like you. Um, and so it's, it's reassuring, very, isn't it's it? very reassuring view of the world. Yeah. Um, and it's very stripped from the world. I mean, if you... If you're an alien landing on this planet, you wanted to learn about the United States in the 1960s, and you just read a bunch of Archie comics, you'd go, "Wow, there was no civil rights movement because there were no black people. There was no war because you'd never represent the war in, right. in Riverdale." So, um, yeah, it's just very kind of bucolic, um, at, you know, uh, anywhere in the United States that uh, is the suburbs that you know who wouldn't want to live there? I always wanted to live in a little town that had those. Those brick, low brick walls that you could yes. sit in, and Jughead was always sitting on. I'm like, I never saw a low brick wall in my entire life, well, but yeah. I wish I lived in Riverdale. You know, Charlie Brown lived in a similar town. He and, had those low brick walls as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just need those. Uh, I'm, like, I'm not sure where that is. It's certainly not around here. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Bart, you're also working on a different project, uh, and involved as a, a previous guest we just had not too long ago on here. So, uh, Nick Susanis, but tell us about your triumphant grant. And what has come from that? Yeah, I've just uh, received with uh, two colleagues, Nick Susanis, who's working with me now at the University of Calgary, and Ben Wu, who used to be at Calgary but is now at Carleton University in Ottawa. We just received almost $300,000 from the uh, federal government of Canada to do a, a long-term four-year study called What Were Comics? And we've started blogging about that and set up our site called whatworecomics.com. What, what, um, what we're trying to do here is... Uh, trace the evolution of the American comic book style over an 80-year period by focusing on typical rather than exceptional works. And so, um, with all love and respect to my colleagues, we tend to work. We tend to look at the most unusual comics when we do comic scholarship. Mouse, Fun Home, sure. Persepolis. Those are all great works, and we can learn a lot about comics by looking at what Bechdel and Spiegelman do. Um, absolutely, but we want to look at what was just the average journeyman. Uh, person doing. So what we're trying to do is create a list of every comic that was published between 1934 and 2014 and then read a randomly selected 2% of them. So a computer will give us our corpus and we will go out and we will say fine, instead of looking at the exceptional comic we're looking at Action Comics number 402 because that was randomly picked and then we're going to start breaking it down. We want to look, trace for example um, the, how the length of stories change, how the amount of text on page changes, how the number of panels on page change over time. Um, I think we'll problematize some of the assumptions that we have about comics. So for instance, if I said to you, yeah, we can argue about when the change from the golden to silver age is. Is, is it with showcases with the implementation of the comics code? You know, there are, there's arguments about that. But what we would agree, I think, is 1952 is golden age, 1958 is silver age, and somewhere in between there's a shift. 
I think if you look at a comic from 1952 and one from 58, you might not see a huge difference in terms of the number of panels, the amount of text, the length of stories, um, the generic uh, work that's being done might look pretty similar. And you'd say, well, there is no difference between gold and the Silver Age. But if you looked at one from 1952 and 1966, I think you'd see a difference. If you looked at one from 66 and 96, I think you'll see a difference. So I think we all know instinctively that there's less text in a superhero comic today than there was when Claremont and Byrne uh, were doing X-Men or in Watchmen. Uh, there's a big difference between Watchmen and Saga, sure, for sure. example. But when exactly did that change? Um, you know, the change is so gradual that it's hard for us often to perceive sure. when there are these, these breaks. And so we're interested in doing these kind of data visualizations and analytics that will allow us to say, oh, okay, in 1948, comics looked like this, and in 1968, they looked like that. Now, you just blew my mind with all this, so I'm bursting with questions, so I don't want to keep you here all the rest of the day. Um, how? Why? How would you... I mean, one of the first changes that, uh, you know, again, that's like thinking about is, like, if you look at the early, the 58, even the early Silver Age comics, too, when they developed the more dynamic style right. that Neil Adams, I think, is probably credited with bringing in. Um, and I think that's when you had the bleed. I mean, right. I'm not sure if there was a technological printing process that made the bleed more possible, but, you know, you started to do those kind of panels... Um, I mean, how do you quantify that? You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like a ble- you know, like the way that, that they started to put panels as insets and all those things. So, so that is absolutely one of the things that we want to talk about. I mean, we want to talk about the spatial geometry of the page. We want to uh, be measuring uh, the size of panels. So there's a difference if we say, okay, well, look, you've got three tiers of two panels each. You've got a six-panel grid. There's a big difference be if one of those tiers is half the size of the page uh, or yes. if they're inset and so on. So when do those things start arising? So we've now been talking actually with uh, colleagues in the United States who have developed a, a tool, a computer tool, that measures the white space on books of Victorian poetry, uh, which is fascinating. And we're like, hey, if we put comics pages in there, is that computer going to be able to measure the size of panels for us? And they're like, oh yes, absolutely, we can probably do that. I'm like, great, so we'd like to be able to chart that over time. Um, we'd like to be able to chart even the notion of the tier. I think the notion of the tier in comics in the 30s and 40s and 50s is pretty straightforward. If you look at EC, they're very clear um, uh, panels. You wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't contend that these things aren't panels, but if you look at uh, Storanto, Sure. Um, you know, now we're in trouble because it's like, yeah. how many tiers? Well, tiers no longer make sense as a criteria uh, when we're looking at, at his comics. So when is it that all of a sudden we the comics page gets broken down in that way? Is well, it Kirby? Is it Stranko? Is yeah. it or you know actually Eisner? I mean, exactly. Eisner certainly took advantage of every possibility that he had yeah. at the time. Um, yeah, wow. Well, this is mind-boggling. Now, how long is this going to take? I think, uh, well, we've got four years of funding, and I think <laughs> the, the book might not be out for about six years. What we're anticipating is kind of huge book that will trace the entire evolution, but then will also drill down into things. So, for instance, 
Um, if we establish that the typical comic in 1945 looks a certain way, and then you look and go, well, Eisner's spirit didn't look that way, I think then we have to isolate the spirit, and then you kind of go back to the atypical and say, exactly how was it different? Was it different? You know, what are the things that made Eisner stand out so much? Um, and what are the, uh, the things that make Bark stand out right. so much, if they are? And then so I, I just imagine students that were going to employ on this project writing kind of sidebars on this and go, okay, well, hold on. Let's, let's stop here and take a look at the spirit and how that was different. Let's stop here and take a look at Crumb um, and say, look, did, was Crumb really that different formally from what was going on in Marvel and DC, certainly thematically, certainly in terms of content and story content. But in terms of the operation of the page, was he that different or was he not that different? Right. Um, and I think um, being able to put some data behind that um, and make it a little bit less impressionistic uh, will be an important breakthrough. Do you... Um, uh, now, how do you... Uh, how did you determine... Like you said, you're going to look at every comic published in this period... Well, two percent of everything. Two percent, but but you're gonna make a list. Yeah. Of so the comics. how are you doing that? So I mean, thankfully, there's the the right. great people at the, at the uh, Grand Comics database have already done a lot of that work for us. So they've indexed. I mean, they've been indexing for twenty years. They've indexed so many hundreds of thousands of comics. So we've exported their data. Um, for American comics between 1934 and 2014, and it's about 300,000 issues. We're now going through and cleaning up that data by hand uh, because we need to exclude things. One of the yeah, one of the interesting things about comics industry is if you say, okay, fine, we're gonna take. Spider-Man number one by Tom McFarlane. Well, there's 19 different variants of that. Right. We're not counting that as 19 okay. different things. So then we have to eliminate 18 of those. Um, variants have become such a big thing. The GCD indexes variants as separate comics. We don't want that. Right, right, so right. there's that, but of course they also index things that we might not think are comics. Um, so for instance, they index uh, Peter Arno collections of New Yorker cartoons. Mm -hmm. Is that a comic book? Well... I'm not sure. I think you can make an argument yes, and you can make an argument no. Uh, we just listened to Scott God. saying, well, these are, these are not, and these are. And it's where he really makes his stand, which is interesting. Yeah, but and anyway. we're not sure if we want to make that stand. So then we thought, we can't just outsource this to the GCD, because what if they have errors? What if they, you know, what if we don't agree? So that we said, if a, if a work exists in two of the following three databases, that it will be a comic for our purposes. So if it's in the GCD, if it's in Overstreet, or if it's available for sale on mycomicshop.com, which we thought was had one of the better search engines mm -hmm. of all the online uh, sorts of... My alarm. Uh, all right, we had a little interruption. Your friends at Apple didn't like that. I know, they didn't. They didn't. But uh, So you're saying that you're, you're going between these three, and yeah, you're not going to have a perfect list, but... No, I don't think we could ever, you know, I don't think anybody can ever... Produce a list of every comic that was published over yes. these eighty well, years because you get you know what what about mini comics well, what about yeah I, I mean even walking around in my own you know like go, every time I clean up my house I'll go through a box and I'll find some little comic that some guy you know in Artist Alley sold me back in nineteen you know ninety one and I'm sure those are not in the Grand Comics database yeah, you we, know we want although they're fascinating yeah we want to be as <laughs> inclusive as we possibly can but. Um, I mean, there is there are limits. So yeah. eventually, you just have to say, you know what? We have this list. It's two hundred twenty-five thousand comics, and we're going to take two percent of that. Um, but and that's that's all we can do. That's still a pretty interesting number. The idea that that I I, I mean, my, the the word that I want to think of is only only two hundred twenty-five thousand comics have been published in the last eighty 
years? It's interesting. If you look at um, the GCD for 2014 had 8,000 okay. uh, comics. And I thought that number was high because I was like, that'd be about 150 comics a week, 160 comics a week. I don't know of any shop that I'd right. be into that's getting that many. Not every shop gets everything. Sure. But then you start going, oh, well, oh, it's variants. Bad. Once you get, you know, if you have 14 variants of something, uh, that's multiplying them up. But even then, you'd think 5,000 would be a high number, because that's 100 a week. But in 1952, which was the early peak of the American comic industry, there was still really only about 1,400 comics published that entire year. Um, so the ramping really? up in the first 20 years, I mean, 1934, depending on how you count things, you're really only looking at 50 or 60 comics. I mean, it was... Um, you can do that very, very quickly. Um, and then there's 52's kind of initial peak that cools down again, starts rising again in the 70s and, and 80s. But you're always looking at, you know, 3,000, 2,000 comics um, published annually. Um, so if it was 2,000, it would only be 160. So right. it's really in the last 15 years where you start seeing years where you're getting five, 6,000 comics But of those 5,000, um, I mean, can, can you quantify how many are variants out of that? Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, that won't be that difficult. It so, would just kind of show so up again and again. So we don't know that number yet, but uh, see that number, just even that number has blown my mind. Like the fact that at the peak of the golden age when comics were selling a million copies, you know, they actually had penetration, obviously, right. much higher uh, that there were so many fewer published than yeah. there are today. No, the circulations were, well, we, we know the circulations yeah. were so much more back. I mean, to go back to Archie, in 1969, the flagship Archie title was selling about 800,000 copies a month. Right. Um, you know, and you know, we get the occasional rocket raccoon or something that, uh, because it gets ordered in so many variants, right. hits that number now. But it's always a kind of miracle when right. we go over two hundred. Right. Um, right. That, that's that a news were release. Actually, that were actually sold, and in some of the cases of the high numbers, they're uh, going out in those those packages right. that are people like Blue Crate and so on. So um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a total uh, apples and oranges comparison. So wow. Well, I imagine a lot of subsidiary research is going to come out of this project. Yeah, it's it's interesting to, you know, we've only had, we only received this grant about a month ago, and so we've been looking at the data. So first you jumped for joy and clicked your heels. And then we registered the <laughs> website, we bought the website, the domain, and registered the Twitter handle. And the uh, first thing you do now when you get as a grant you do, get as a, you do. Get, make sure you get a Twitter handle um, so that you're going to have it for the next few years. And then we just began looking at, at the data, and what's really fascinating is if you search the GCD just by year, and the, you can in advance search, you can limit things to certain years, um, your entire perspective of comics changes just by reading the list. Um, so just, for instance, I was looking at 1948, which is a year that I've done some research on, and that's the big year with the crime comics boom. And you always think, oh, crime comics are so huge, you, have, you know, crime does not pay, and crime must get the penalty, and crime are women, and all these comics come in. But at the same time, you look and you go, God, there's still a lot of uh, funny animal comics. Like, well, that's... a ton oh, yes. of funny animal Absolutely. comics. Absolutely, And yeah. you think, oh, well, during the Second World War, superheroes dominated. Well, no, they looked to be about 15% of the total market. They totally and, were not, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, even, I mean, I wrote up a little bit about this recently, but 
when I worked at DC Comics, they would have, you know, Hall of Fame, and they had all these covers of, like, Bob Hope comics. Right. Bob Hope were, and they were very popular. Yeah, those media and, tie-ins, which and, nobody writes about. Right, those. and yeah, and I mean, Jerry Lewis comics, and I mean, all of these media tie-in comics that were just, you know, very unlikely now. I mean, is somebody going to do a Daniel Tosh comic? Right. I don't I don't think so. But uh, I hope not. Yeah, I was going to uh, say. But, uh, yeah, and you saw, you know, whereas, you know, even working there, like, acknowledging this past right. was like, oh, well, they wouldn't, nothing, you know, nobody would read that nowadays. I'm like, are you really? I don't yeah. think people are that different, to, you know, 50 years later, but and sure. Our, our question is really, what, what would change in the scholarship if we actually read Bob Hope comics? Like, what... Um, you know, if you look at the typical rather than the exceptional, how will our understanding of what comics have been? And this is what we're interested in. What were comics? Not what not what are they or what they could be, which is what Scott was talking about earlier, but what really were they? If we take the widest possible view and go in with open eyes. I, I did a random sample of one year just to see what it might look like uh, from the GCD list. It was 1983. I picked 1983, which is the year that I was 14 years old. I was reading tons of of comics and the things that we got they're like okay here's your hundred random comics and it was like uh, ROM 36 and Dazzler 12 and Marvel 2-in-1 annual number 7 and it's like what scholar is ever going to write on Marvel 2-in-1 annual number 7 which by the way turns out to be collectibles about 15 bucks I'm like really? <laughs> <laughs> it must be the most valuable issue of Marvel 2 in 1 um, and, be surprised um, and it's just like wow this is but it also turned out like Saber number 3 mm. and um, you know you just kind of go oh yeah there's lots of weird stuff mm-hmm. and if we looked at this weird stuff instead of just looking at the early issues of Love and Rockets, which are now, you know, important comics, um, you might get a very different sense of what was being published um, and what was available to readers at, at any given moment. Um, and so I think we'll see a very different stylistic evolution. The big question we're going to have is to move away. It's very easy to count words on a page. Mm-hmm. You just hire a student and you say, get counting, and there's not much dispute, and you go, that word balloon has 12 words and this one has six. Um, but when we get into the more subjective things, like how many characters are there in a panel? Well, it depends. What are we calling a character? Do they have to have a name? Do they have to have dialogue? Is a bystander in a Spider-Man right. panel a character uh, or not? And then when we start to get into even more subjective things, like how do we quantify cartoony versus realistic art and mm-hmm. so on, that's going to be, that's kind of a later okay, year Okay, so stuff this is us. going to be, I was going to say, like counting the panels is going to be one thing, that, but you are going to do some kind of sub- subject, more subjective analysis. I think so, and I think we're going to end up you know, employing a lot of students and using a lot of classroom time to get students to discuss this and uh, you know, Scott in Understanding Comics tries to you know, plot cartoony on a triangular grid and I don't know if that really works for us, we'll probably come up with our own way of doing it, but I think we'll try to try, and that's going to be the, the key word, um, try to come up with some coding standards there that would say, okay, this is the way we're going mm-hmm. to quantify um, this. Because certain things are, are really straightforward in, uh, in comics, and certain things are incredibly open right. for uh, debate and discussion. 
Um, and so trying to make some sense of that is going to be the right. long-term challenge. Well, wow. Well, I'll be following right along, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will as well. What's that website URL? One more time. Whatworkcomics.com. And we've started to blog about some of the issues even that we've had at the level of the database and trying to, uh, to mm-hmm. figure that out. And the plan is to, once we start coding, and we'll start coding in September, we believe, um, we'll probably try and get a blog post up almost every day where we just... Uh, um, have the unusual comics page right. of the day because even just starting to poke in, we're like, oh, that's very bizarre. Some of the things that uh, were being published in the early 1940s. So. Well, we'll be following along very much. Well, Bart, thank you so much right, for uh, taking the time to talk to us here at TCAF, and there'll be more to come. Hi, this is Heidi McDonald at Toronto Comic Arts Fest, and right now I'm here with Tina Coleman of the American Library Association, and She's the member specialist? Membership specialist. Membership yeah. specialist. All right. But she also runs the graphic novel uh, programming and uh, Artist Alley. And there's a lot of programming for comics and graphic novels at this year's ALA uh, membership meeting. So I wanted to find out a little bit more about how that came about. So did you, what, what, how did this get started, Tina? Uh, well, for this year, a lot of a lot of it actually got started at Midwinter with uh, graphic novels being so well represented at the Youth Media Awards. Uh, that sort of gave us uh, the momentum to move forward and do a lot of graphic novel programming and plan for a lot of fun stuff going on at annual, um, which is going to be very big. And I mean, I I, I sort of facilitate things uh, and coordinate uh, on on the inside, but a lot of it is dependent on what my librarians and members pull together mm-hmm. and I mean it's they they are are as always the engine of ALA right. so um having them pull together and put together uh, really good programming mm-hmm. uh some of the stuff that uh we have going on a little bit of a highlights uh, on Friday of annual conference this year we'll have a uh, half day discussion forum that centers on diversity in comics specifically. So we have a panel of creators talking about uh, general sort of diversity things in comics, and then we have something that is specializing or focusing on uh, gender in comics, and then we have an LGBT-focused panel, uh, and then there'll be discussion breaks throughout the day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So people can sort of discuss that. Right. So did you... Um, <clears throat> now, the, the focus of, you know, the love great love affair between libraries and, and graphic novels is, you know, kind of recent, I'd say maybe a decade old, but, but uh, no, you, when you started there, was there a lot of graphic novel programming at ALA? No, no, <laughs> there wasn't. Um, there was, there, my, I've been at ALA for about 15 years now, and when I started, there was a graphic novel pavilion at the, the conferences, mm-hmm. at the annual conferences where the publishers were, but it was still really small, uh, sort of the landmark was, uh, I think about 10, 11 years ago, there was the, uh, the Young Adult Library Services Association, YALSA, did a pre-conference um, called Get Graphic that mm-hmm. focused on graphic novels, and that sort of launched a bunch of new thoughts and, and ideas, and li- it sort of engaged a lot of libraries. That was actually the same year as the first free comic book day, if I recall correctly. Yes, so it was yes, like it was a good this, year for comics It was kind of this qu- crazy, yeah, the year that comics broke. So, um, so yes, you think it was it was really this one event that kind of got people a little bit more like thinking about it in a way. I or? think that it's sort of well, it, 
very much true to form in comics world. Mm-hmm. It got the people that were already all thinking on the same page mm-hmm. in the same room so they could see that other people were right. thinking in that way. So it sort of put a lot of people together and moved things forward. So it was a really big leap. Right, right. But yeah, now there's, I mean, the it's a world of difference even between that <laughs> one pre-conference, which was one day during conference, and then there was not. I mean, mm-hmm. now it's much um, we're doing our little graphic con mini comic con within ALA annual conference at annual this year, but then even things at like midwinter had a great panel that booklist pulled together the author panel mm-hmm. uh, about diversity that had like Jean Yang and CC Bell mm-hmm. and right. um, Jeff Smith was on it. So, yeah. and that wasn't part of any graphic novel centric thing. That was just a part of ALA, you, which is great. Do you think that the greater level of acceptance, um, I mean, is it... I've heard several different reasons for it. It's kind of a chicken or the egg thing. I mean, first off, there are a lot of really great graphic novels now. And a lot of really great cartoonists, like the ones you just named. Um, but it also seems that librarians are kind of... Um, you know, as younger librarians come in, they also kind of grew up maybe reading some of these books. I mean, is it is it the libraries or the books or the just the air or what? Yeah, I think that it's a huge combination of all of those things. Their graphic novels really have... I don't want to say they've come of age because that will one maybe jinx something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they're you know they're really sort of arriving in a really golden age of graphic novels in America uh, and beyond. Um, but in the library world, you, you do have a younger group of librarians coming in and injecting. I mean, they've always read mm-hmm. comics and graphic novels as books, or they've always accepted them as a part of right. the whole landscape. Right. Um, but then you, you do have older librarians that are still in the in the field, and they learn. I mean, librarians <laughs> as a rule are pretty subversive <laughs> or revolutionary or open. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, that all of those factors combined sort of really build into one big movement. Right, right. Now, do you, uh, just to put this into perspective for us, though, um, I mean, what are some other hot genres in libraries right now? I mean, are graphic uh, novels still holding their own? or Graphic novels are still, well, I mean, they're still, like, mm-hmm. one of the most circulated and mm-hmm. also one of the most stolen, mm-hmm. right. especially in the teen area. Sure, sure. Uh, I think that, that um, in terms of service and, and circulation numbers, graphic mm-hmm. novels are still way up there. Right, right. Um, and they always have been. But any teen mm-hmm. literature is, I mean... Twilight, Divergent, mm-hmm. all of those things, then uh, pop culture in general, mm-hmm. is a, and I think that that's why more people understand why graphic, how graphic novels fit in, right. too, since pop culture in general is sort of really exploding out. Right. So all of these things that are, The Walking Dead is huge on television, and those people haven't even read the comics, right. say right. with Game of Thrones, and all of those things are, I think that all of those things that you see mirrored throughout the pop culture in general mm-hmm. are also the things that are big in library world. Right. Now, how do you find that publishers, you know, since you've been doing this? Now, you have a, like you say, you have a whole pavilion now, right? So mm-hmm. it's like, a, and you have a mini Comic-Con there. Like, how many publishers come to ALA? Uh, graphic novel publishers, we, we have our regulars. Uh, this year, since we're on the West Coast, we have a few extras. So mm-hmm. Dark Horse is, is going to be back. And Diamond usually brings IDW, and there's uh, Image is going to mm-hmm. be there. I think Oni is going to be there this year. Um, so we actually have even mm-hmm. more of a, pub- a publisher presence uh, this year. But there's usually a nice-sized mm-hmm. 
little publisher section, and then it branches out into this beautiful artist alley that we have <laughs> at ALA annual conferences now, and this is our fourth year running it, and um, there's at least 30 tables. I think that there might be like 40 tables this year, so um, there's really a nice creator and publisher representation right. there. Well, that's a lot of artists to have, actually. And At a non-comic yeah, show, yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, how do you get in? Do you p- apply? Are you chosen? Are you special? Yes. Uh, there is an application process. Uh, we have 30 tables that are actually free. Mm-hmm. Uh, the artists apply for the table. Uh, they they get If they're approved, they get the table, and the only exchange is that we ask them to donate a piece of art for us to auction off. Uh, mm-hmm. The proceeds go to our scholarship fund. Right. Um, this was the first year that we started uh, an overflow list. So we have, beyond those tables, we started selling tables to artists as well at a very low price point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can kind of make room and have even more creators there. Right. Are they allowed to sell at the show? Or yes. do they? Yeah, okay. Yes. So it is a potentially, like, uh, you know, I mean, the attendees of the show are librarians. Yes. <laughs> Just to be clear, um, but a lot of them we've discovered are fans of certain cartoonists. and yeah, <laughs> Yes, and talking to the artists that are at our Artist Alley, I always get this great, especially the people that are there for the first time, I always get this great first reaction uh, from them where they're surprised because it's so different than mm-hmm. a comic convention because you do have people that will totally come to your table and fan out and they've followed all your work and they need to purchase everything and they want you to do a sketch just like their transaction would would be sure. at, although it's a, a short woman with colored hair <laughs> and a cat sweater. Right, right. Um, <laughs> Not, no, no stereotypes. Here. No, no. no <laughs> just observation. I, mean, like, I wish I had a cat card again. <laughs> and then, but then they also end up meeting a lot of librarians that mm. come over to the alley specifically because they don't know comics. Right. And so the creators then also become not just ambassadors of their own work, but they become ambassadors of the medium in general. So they get the opportunity to actually talk about the right. craft of it, which I think that they find really gratifying as well. Right. So, And, I mean, it's still, like, um, you know, we've seen a lot of authors really begin to do very well in the library market, a lot of them in the children and teen area. But, um, you know, it's it's quite uh, it, it's quite diverse. I mean, who are some of the artists that are going to be in your Artist Alley this year? Uh, this year we'll have Gene Yang mm-hmm. and Raina Talgemeyer and Dave Roman and like Jersey Droid will mm-hmm. be there. These are our alums yes, too. I mean, yes, they've been like, they've been sort of yeah. the core of the artists. Apostles, alley. as I call yes. them. Yes, uh, um, I'm trying to remember. I don't have. The All right. Full list. Well, you know what? We could go look on the website. I'm <gasps> it sure it is on the website. All yes, right. and 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 check this out. You can also get a preview of some of the mm-hmm. art that's going to be available for the art auction too. Right. Well, it's really amazing. It's such a great win-win for everybody. Uh, you know, the and we're here at this conference here at TCAF. Um, how long have you been coming to this little conference? I, I think this is my third or okay. fourth year. Uh, yeah, this is always great because it's sort of uh, some of the creators that are going to be in Artist Alley are here, mm-hmm. so I get to make connections. But it's also for me sort of the chance to see some of the comic stuff that I'm going to be working too hard at ALA and your right. conference. So I'll miss it. So this gives me an opportunity, and since it's right before, it's really right, great. Right, And it's also just a great time where like-minded you know, people get together and talk oh, about yes. this whole thing. And, Definitely. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's, it's a good time. Well, Tina, hopefully one of these days I'm going to get there to the ALA. You keep asking me. Keep I know. Well, this year it's very tempting, so we'll see. Maybe <laughs> a future podcast. One of these days I'm going to put together a future podcast. Program yes, but force you to come. whether I'm there or I'm not, it sounds like it's going to be a pretty cool event. So, well, thank you so much. Thank you. 
Okay, hi. Uh, can you introduce yourself? My name's Jeff. I'm the proprietor here at Beachhead Comics. Have been since we opened in July of 1985. And um, how would you say this free comic book day is stacking up next to other free comic book days? It's at least as good, if not better. Uh, in years past, we've had a very talented artist named Scott Hanna mm -hmm. join us most of the time for free comic book day. Scott's got other uh, obligations today, so he's not able to make it, but we have our friend Dave, who is an aspiring artist and studied under Scott Hanna, and Charles Bristow, who works with a cosplay group called Models and Mayhem, and uh, we've had a very nice turnout. Okay. Uh, the fact that the morning call gave us a little bit of a, a write-up in their uh, Go Guides section is, is certainly helpful, and we've also got a paid advertisement this week for the DC event convergence. So, um, have you had any, like, holdover from people who, who come for free comments a day and then become regular customers? Uh, uh, that's happened, certainly. We also have people who are regulars every year for free comic book day. Okay. Good to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Stepha Burke. Um, I'm, I'm just not a, I'm not a random customer. I'm the boss's wife, actually. Okay, well then, I'm, I'm interviewing both staff and customers. Okay. I sort of figured that and you And I, I always here. help with events. Um, so how would you say this free comic book day is doing as opposed to other free comic book days? Well, um, actually, I think the turnout is very nice this year. It, it's steady. People are coming in at a very nice pace. They stay. They look around. They, you know, buy some stuff. They're engaging in conversations. You know, nobody's in a real hurry to leave. It's very nice. And so this comic book store is? Beachhead Comics. Um, Allentown's first and foremost and oldest established comic book store. Be here 30 years in July. So um, can you tell me what you're doing for Free Comic Book Day? Well, what we're doing is we have a selection both this year's comics and some of the comics we had left over from last year, so we have a wider selection. So, uh, do you have any special events going on for today? Uh, yes, we have two gentlemen who are artists, uh, Charles and Dave, and uh, several models of Charles's are going to be coming along shortly. They should be here pretty much any minute now. Okay, great. And do you think in the past, have you seen any... Um Pulled over from like people who come in for free comic book day who then come back later? Oh, yes. Yes. And uh, this year is no exception. We've had people who are taking business cards and go, yeah, I've got to come back, which is always nice. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Hi, and so I have run into two very happy customers at Free Comic Book Day, um, and I was wondering if you guys could introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Kevin Mears. I'm a demonologist and a paranormal investigator. I'm Misha Campbell. Hopefully, uh, I'll have a video company soon. <laughs> and so, uh, what have you guys been up to at Free Comic Book Day here? I mean, you seem pretty settled in. <laughs> We've been in uh, hanging out because uh, my friend uh, showcasing his art here. Mm -hmm. They got our free comic books with. Uh, yeah, so, well, what, uh, now I can't remember the title of the collection. It's the Mad, Mad Love. Love. Mad Love collection. And so are, are you uh, normally into comic books, or is this a special thing because your friend's here, or what's up? Uh, it's a special thing that we're here because my friend's here, but I am normally into comic books. Yeah, we're, we're geeks, yes. and proud of it. And so, 
Uh, are you enjoying the day as a social occasion? Oh, definitely. Yes. Meeting some wonderful people here today. Okay. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you.